Heavenly Father, we pray that you might be given all praise and glory through the reading of and through the exposition of your word. We pray for the work of your spirit to guide and help me to speak clearly and to withhold anything that might not be a true reflection of your word. We pray for all of us that we would only hear, respond, and faithfully respond in obedience to that which is true. Lord, may we see something of who you are. May it capture our hearts to live wholeheartedly for you, that we might yield to you, that we might seek and pursue you, and that we too might be transformed from glory to glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Being able to see is quite an important part of life. There's been so many times our kids have been doing things and we have to say to them, hey, kids, you've got to be careful with eyes because if you, if you damage your eyes, it could be permanent, you might not be able to see again. But then on the other hand, I'm also amazed by people who have no eyesight, either because it's happened, something's happened and they've become blind or they're born blind, how well they're able to adapt and do things that I just think, same situation, I don't think I'd be able to do the same. But even when you have perfect eyesight, there are conditions in which you do not see well. And when you don't see well, it affects your actions and your activity and response. Whether it's a foggy Toowoomba morning in winter and you're trying to drive to get somewhere and the things that you can't see, or whether it's getting up to go to the toilet in the middle of the night with, the, with all of the lights off, you realise when you cannot see clearly, your actions are not always walking in truth the way in which you'd like. Sarah's probably had countless bruises on her legs from walking into the legs on the end of our beds for those journeys walking around at night time. Clarity of vision directly affects your ability to walk straight and truly. Only back in the previous chapter, in Mark chapter 8, verses 22 to 26, after the disciples had been rebuked by Jesus for their not being able to see both his identity and his mission clearly. Jesus had said to them, Having eyes, do you not see? And from there in verses 22 through to 26, Jesus performed a miracle on a man who was blind. And it was an unusual miracle in that it was two stages. Firstly, after placing some mud on the guy's eyes, asking, what can you see? And he says, I see people, but they're like trees walking around. And then Jesus lays his hands on him again and he's able to see fully. And we saw how that was kind of like a, a visual lesson for his disciples who at that point in time did not see Jesus clearly to remind them that Jesus alone is the one who grants the ability for us to see him clearly. Every step in our growth in knowing him is a result of his work. And there are two key events in last chapter and in this chapter in terms of the disciples coming to a clearer vision of who Jesus is. Firstly, in Peter's confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Even though it was, in words, a correct statement, we saw that Peter didn't understand it. 
Jesus had to speak plainly to him how the Son of Man must essentially suffer, be rejected by the chief priests, the elders and the scribes, and to die and to be raised again. And through refining what it meant for Jesus to be the Son of God, to be the Christ, gave them a clearer vision of what that truly meant. And now today we see Peter, James and John who get to see Jesus gloriously transfigured before their eyes as well as the affirmation of God himself. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. So as we work through these 29 verses, we'll ask the question that we didn't look at last week. When will the kingdom come with power? The call to listen to Jesus. The question about where does Elijah fit into the whole scenario? having faith in this Jesus that we're starting to see more clearly who he is and then concluding with seeing him rightly and walking in response rightly. Firstly, when will this kingdom come with power? Now I said last week we'd look at this verse and we are going to look at it. But in this one verse, there have been volumes written about what this could potentially mean. And there are different disputes about two areas. Firstly, who is the promise to? And secondly, what is the meaning of the promise? But you cannot approach any aspect of scripture void of its context. This is all part of a communication that Jesus has been having with his disciples and with a greater crowd that he's invited into that conversation as well. It is not separate from the the last verse of chapter 8. He is speaking to his disciples and the crowds. And to them he says, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. So of these two areas which people have different opinions, who does it apply to? What is the nature of what is being promised? Firstly, who does it apply to? Well, some will say this applies to people future to Jesus, maybe even future to us. Well, others in which I'm very much inclined say, Jesus said plainly, nothing cryptic, nothing symbolic. He said, there to the people before him, the disciples and the crowds, there are some people standing here in front of Jesus who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God coming with power. To conclude that it was being said or refers to someone other than those directly in front of him kind of makes what Jesus said to be false. And that's probably a good lesson in terms of biblical interpretation. If your interpretation of anything Jesus says requires you to say that what Jesus says doesn't mean what it says, then either Jesus is right or you're right. And without even needing to discuss you with what your interpretation might be, if they're the two options, I'm going to tell you which way and I'm going with every time. It must apply to the people who are standing before Jesus for the integrity of Jesus and for the integrity of the Scriptures. So what does it mean that the kingdom of God to come in power Now, usually the person who says this doesn't apply to those standing here but to somebody future is because they understand this coming of the kingdom of God in power must mean the second coming of Jesus. But there is nothing in this 
verse or in this passage that would suggest that is actually what Jesus is referring to. You can understand why people would come to that conclusion if that is what Jesus is referring to and Jesus didn't return during the lifetime of those who were in front of him, that they would think that it must apply to somebody future. But if there's no reason to believe that Jesus is referring to his second coming, what does it mean to him? Well, there's two primary options which people hold different views on. Both apply to those who are standing before Jesus as he makes this promise. Some would say he's referring to the transfiguration that's about to take place. After all, Mark specifically says after this, exactly six days later, Peter, James and John go up onto the mountain with Jesus where they see him gloriously transfigured. And so some think this is the statement of the six days is trying to make an emphatic connection between those two things. Now, while I think there's a degree of foretaste in the transfiguration, I'm not personally convinced that was what Jesus was referring to either. Remember what is being promised? There will be some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God coming with power. If you think back to John chapter 3, Jesus' discussion with Nicodemus, he talks about seeing the kingdom of God. He says, you cannot see the kingdom of God unless you are born again. Which he reiterates later a few verses, unless you are born of the Spirit. And Jesus explicitly connects this coming of power in regards to the Spirit in chapter 1 verse 8 of Acts. He says, you will receive power when the Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So Jesus says, you can't see the kingdom unless you're born of the Spirit. Jesus says, the power will come when the Spirit comes at Pentecost. And when the Spirit did come at Pentecost, Peter speaks in his sermon and says, it was foretold that one would sit on David's throne forever. He foretold and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ. So those who were gathered there at Pentecost, which would have been some of those who were before Jesus when he makes this promise, were those who saw the kingdom of God come with power. But on the other hand, it's also true that there is something to be seen of the glory of Christ in the transfiguration that we see in verses 2 to 8. I didn't need to wait long, a period of six days. There's a lot of parallel things you'll notice between what we read here in the Transfiguration as well as the, the parallel, not parallel, but a similar account of Moses in Exodus 24 going up Mount Sinai where he receives the law. In both cases you have the reference to the six days for Moses that was six days on Mount Sinai before hearing the word of God. You see the, the, being the enveloping of the, of the cloud, the, the glory of God coming down and resting upon the mountain. In both cases, you see the voice of God speaking into the cloud to the recipients. This is a significant event. It's significant enough that Matthew records it in Matthew chapter 17, Mark records it in chapter 9, and Luke records it in chapter 9. And each of them, as often the case, add little details that help us bigger, build a bigger picture of what took place. For example, Luke tells us that they went up to the mountain to pray. Jesus, Peter, James and John went up the mountain to pray. 
Not only does Luke tell us they went up to the mountain to pray, but Peter, James and John fell asleep. They were fast asleep. And while they were fast asleep was when Jesus was transfigured, when Moses and Elijah appeared and began having conversation with Jesus. Luke 9, chapter, chapter 9, verse 31, even tells us that Moses and Elijah are specifically speaking with Jesus regarding his departure, using the same word for the exodus that he's about to undertake in Jerusalem, speaking of his death and resurrection. These extra details help us understand the shock that the disciples wake up to. Can you just imagine, if you put yourself in their scenario... They've gone up to the mountain to pray with Jesus, fallen asleep. While they're asleep, Jesus' face is shining bright as the sun. His clothes are bright white, more than any bleach, any nappy sand or any other product that you bought on an impulse on a social media ad because it seemed to make everything cleaner than you've ever seen before. Moses and Elijah are there chatting to Jesus and this is what you wake up to see. I reckon my response probably would be not real good. I'm not that clever when I first wake up. Sarah can testify to that. Most of you can testify I'm not that clever for the rest of the day either. But that's what they wake up to. So I could say a few things in Peter's defence. That's a lot to wake up to, isn't it? Seeing Jesus in that glorified state, Elijah and Moses. And while we kind of think... Particularly when Mark says, no, he, he didn't really know what to say, so he's kind of like, let's set up tents, this is great. In between the finish of the Old Testament and the New Testament, some, there were actually writings amongst the Jews expecting something by way that gee, God would come again and he would tabernacle in tents amongst his people. So that's probably influenced a little bit of what Peter had said. Then a cloud, the glory of God, envelops them, just as it did on Moses on Mount Sinai, and God speaks to them, saying, This is my beloved Son, listen to him. Now part of that, Peter has already confessed himself. Remember when, when Jesus asked the disciples, Who do you say I am? Peter says, You are the Christ, you are the Son of the living God. So Peter was great with the, This is my beloved Son bit. But when Peter had spoken of this one as being the son of the living God, when he plainly outlined the central nature of his mission, Peter wasn't so good on the listen to him bit. He was kind of like that, no, I'm going to tell you what for. That's not the way it's going to pan out. Let me, let me correct you there, Jesus. Listen to him. And then in that moment, as they look around, Moses and Elijah are no more. There's only Jesus before them. They're not trying to communicate Moses and Elijah, they don't matter anymore, just, just forget about them. But rather, Moses, Elijah, all of the Old Testament characters, scriptures and promises, they pointed to and they find their fulfilment in Jesus, this one left standing before them. Don't let the scribes, the Pharisee, the elders, whatever it is, teaching from the prophets, from Moses, influence how you understand Jesus. No, 
allow Jesus' self-revelation of who he is help you understand what Moses and the prophets were saying. Why Moses and Elijah? Well, some say, well, one represents the law, one represents the prophets. Maybe Elijah wasn't specifically a writing prophet responsible for any of the books in the Old Testament as such. Potentially more just representative of the prophetic word of the entirety of the Old Testament, all of which pointed to and found its fulfilment in Christ. And in particular, when you consider these closing verses of the Old Testament, you can see the connection between these two. When Malachi wrote in verses 4 to 6 of chapter 4, the final chapter, the final words, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statues and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And likely for the disciples, this verse is in their mind. This expectation is in their mind, raising the obvious question. So where does Elijah fit in? As they're heading down the mountain, Jesus commands the disciples not to tell anyone what they've seen. There's been a number of times in Mark when Jesus has commanded people to be silent, to not tell people. But this is the first time that he puts a, a time frame to be silent. He says, do not tell anyone until I have been raised from the dead. Unlike many beforehand, the disciples actually kept that command to keep silent. But along the way, it raised some questions for them. Especially, what was Jesus rising from the dead all about? Why, why was it so essential that he die if he's just going to rise again. And where does Elijah come in? We know that, that the Old Testament scriptures said, Elijah must come before the day of the Lord. And Jesus is speaking about things that seem pretty soon. Surely this isn't going to be unfulfilled. Where does Elijah fit? They were expecting Elijah to come before the Messiah. He's now saying he's going to die and be raised again. Let me assure you, there is no prophecy of Scripture that fails to come to pass. So Jesus explains to their questions, saying to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Jesus says, Elijah has come. In Matthew, he very specifically says, and John the Baptist was Elijah. And look how they treated him. Don't be surprised when they mistreat the Son of Man. And Jesus even said, don't you remember, as it is written of him, that the Old Testament scriptures foretold that the Son of Man would be mistreated. Then as they continue down the mountain, much like Moses, things aren't real good down the mountain. They're not making golden calves, but there is a bit of commotion going on down there. So faith in this Jesus, verses 14 to 29, 
So to set the scene, there's a man who has a son. This son has an unclean spirit that remains him mute, unable to speak, deaf, unable to hear, and also sends him into convulsions. And in a destructive way, he even speaks about how at times tries to throw him onto fire or into water to drown him. But in Jesus' absence, the remaining nine disciples try to heal and deliver this young gentleman, but it seems to be ineffective. That seems to me to be the setting for which the scribes are probably arguing with the disciples. Probably something along the lines of, you can't claim to be on a mission from God. If God was behind this, and if God was behind this, this Jesus whom you serve, then it would happen. But look, you can't. God's not behind this ministry. Stop the facade. If you recall throughout Mark and the other Gospels, there have been occasions when the disciples have cast out demons, they have healed people, when Jesus is not physically present with them. So this is, in that sense, it's not a new scenario. But whatever the crowds thought of the disciples and the scribes and their arguments going on, when they see Jesus, they're excited. They're amazed. They run to him because they know this one has never failed to heal or cast out any demon ever before. And so they run to Jesus who asked the crowd, what's all this arguing about? And do you notice the two parties who are doing the arguing don't answer that question? The disciples don't give an answer. The scribes don't give an answer. The answer comes from the father of this son with the evil spirit who kind of provides a bit of an an outline of what his son has endured and the fact that the disciples have been unable to provide healing for his son. Now Jesus appears to be frustrated, but his frustration does not appear to be with the disciples for their inability to heal. No, he says he answered them to the crowds, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. He doesn't say, oh, faithless disciples who haven't been able to heal. He says to the whole crowds, oh, faithless generation. How long have I been here? How long have you seen me before your very eyes, yet failed to come to a right conclusion of who I am? Now as for the child, his symptoms weren't just medical symptoms. It is noted that the very moment the spirit sees Jesus, he throws him into convulsions. He foams at the mouth. Now some might ask, why didn't Jesus heal him instantly? Why, why didn't just Jesus deliver him right there and then before entering into a conversation with the dad? Is like, how long has this been going on for? Tell me a bit more. You think, Jesus doesn't need to ask those sorts of questions, does he? Surely he knows all of that background. Why stall? And I'd say he's asked this question for the benefit both of the Father and for the crowds. That they might hear the magnitude of what this son has been afflicted with. Being deaf, being mute, 
being thrown into convulsions in such a destructive way that tries to put him onto fire or to drown him in water, that this has gone on from his childhood, that it might bring greater glory to Christ when he brings about this healing. And then simply by speaking, effectively get out and don't come back, the spirit had no choice but to leave and off he went. But as the spirit departed, the crowd look upon the boy who, to their eyes, looks dead. Remember, like Jairus' daughter, and they said, oh, don't trouble him anymore. No, she's dead. Again, what appears to be a hopeless situation to the crowds. Simply by Jesus taking him by the hand, he raises him up. Now, no doubt the crowds were amazed, as they always tend to be whenever Jesus does something miraculous. But the disciples would have been somewhat perplexed too. They're like, Jesus, you made that look so easy. Why couldn't we do that? Like all you said was get out and don't come back again. We said all sorts of stuff. We didn't have any luck. And Jesus says, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Or if you've got a King James and you're familiar with the King James, it also adds the word and fasting, which... The earlier manuscripts don't have it again. It's still just another expression of your dependence upon God. The limitation wasn't the fact that it was just the disciples. Disciples can't do this stuff. The limitation wasn't the fact that, man, this spirit was so bad that, man, you needed a higher rank, Jesus, to to deal with this one. The limitation and what eluded them was appropriate faith in Jesus in who he truly was and depending upon him and trusting that he was everything that he says he is. Prayer is effectively faith in action. We come to God in prayer as an act of faith of saying, I cannot, but you can. Matthew's account, which provides a bit more detail to the answer that Jesus gave to this question as to why were we not able to cast it out. Jesus says, because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. The power is not in the disciples. The power is in their faith in Christ who has all power. And because he has all power, how much is impossible? Nothing is impossible. Now you need to be careful when you come across a promise like that. When it says nothing is impossible does not mean that every single seemingly impossible request that you bring before God is necessarily going to be granted the way you want or that it's even God's will in the first place. I think people on all parts of the spectrum could learn a little bit from that statement. Those on the more conservative end of the spectrum would probably do well to focus more on the fact that he can If it is his will, even something that might just seem ridiculously big, he can. If it is his will. Some on the more extreme end of the Pentecostal end maybe tone down the he will 
And so somehow if I declare it faithfully and loud enough that somehow I'll make it his will, maybe have that great confidence of what he can do, but maybe tone down a little bit more of if he wills it to be. There is nothing impossible for Jesus. There is nothing that is too big that's impossible for Jesus. There is nothing too small that's impossible for Jesus. So we should come boldly. But we should also come humbly saying, not my will, your will be done. We need to see right in order to walk right. If we're honest, none of us see Jesus as clearly as we would like to. We don't see him perfectly, understand everything about him. Even if, we, if, even if we word all the correct doctrine about him, our response is a greater indication of how truly we do think about him. But let me tell you, if you are in Christ, you are being transformed. It's all very part of the purpose for which he chose you and called him to himself, that you might be transformed. If you are in Christ, you will be transformed to see him better and to walk closely with him better. Wherever we speak Jesus revealing of himself, he doesn't put a distinction between knowledge about him and discipleship and following him in light of that knowledge. The clearer we see him, the closer we walk with him, and the more we resemble our Lord whom we follow. What we believe about Jesus transforms and refines our response and our life. It's interesting that the same word that was translated to transfigure in Jesus' transfiguration, at least twice in the New Testament, is used and spoken of Christians. The first of those, Romans 12.2, says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, same word that's translated transfigured, by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable and perfect. Called, renew your mind. Come to see him more clearly, understand him better, so that you be transfigured so that you be changed. And a result of you being changed in your thinking and in who you are, that you might discern what is the will of God, his good, pleasing and perfect will. Not just knowing for knowing's sake, but for the outcome that we will discern his will, that we will be changed. That our transfigured thinking would lead to transfigured living. And as we behold the glory of the Lord, we are changed. As Paul wrote to the Corinthians in chapter 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed, again, transfigured into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. It is my prayer for me, is my prayer for us. God, show us your glory. Help us to see you more clearly. Make us to make, take time to gaze upon you and change us day by day to bring us from glory to glory. 
Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you call us to come to you as we are, but you have no desire that we would remain as we are. You are in the business of changing people from one glory to another. Lord, we pray that we would put ourselves in an environment where our minds might be renewed, that we would look to your scriptures, that we would seek you in prayer, that we might behold you more clearly, that we might respond in a way that expresses our changed nature, that we might walk closely with you, that we might walk in a way that that resembles the image of Christ formed within us. Thank you that you are changing us. We thank you that where we are right now on this Sunday morning is not where you want us to be forever. Nor is it going to be where you're going to leave us forever. So Lord, we pray asking and also thanking in advance for your transforming walk within it, work within us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Next week, there's our reading for next week. So it's uh, to the end of chapter 9, verse 30 through to 50, which Alon will be preaching next week.